You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. To Genesis chapter 34 this morning. Genesis chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one of these black pew Bibles right in front of where you're sitting. If you're reading from the pew Bible, you can find Genesis 34 on page 26 in the Pew Bible. If you're visiting with us today, we've been in the book of Genesis since the beginning of this year, so we've been in it for quite a while now. Uh, You can catch up anytime you want on the sermons. You can find them on the church website or the podcast. It might take you a little while to work through uh, 10 months of of sermons at this point, Uh, but that's where you find us today in Genesis 34. You know, our commitment to preaching sequentially through books of the Bible forces us once again to consider a story today that we would probably normally skip over, or I probably would as a preacher, if I just picked random random Bible stories each week to preach from, I probably wouldn't pick this story today. It's not a story you'll find in any children's Bible story book, and for good reason. It's a graphic story. It's painful, difficult. Uh, Albert Moeller refers to this story as like one of those stories you wish you didn't know once you know it. Have you ever watched the news or read the news and, and you saw a story or came across a story that you wish you hadn't heard? Maybe because the details were just that vile or disturbing or gruesome, and you wish you could unknow that information so it wasn't in your head in the first place. Well, this story is kind of like that. The Bible has multiple stories like that that are difficult to read and even more difficult to digest and figure out why did God include that in his word? And yet, in God's infinite wisdom, he has ordained for a story like this to be included in his holy word. So it's worth our time and energy this morning to dive into it. And I'll say from the outset that there is no hero in this story today. There's, in fact, there's not a single redeeming factor to be found in this story. So we'll have a little extra work to do in discovering the application point for us. Because of the nature of this story, I think it's best to just take it all in in one reading. So I want us to start by reading through chapter 34 as a whole, and then we'll break it down together. So would you begin reading with me in Genesis 34? Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. 
Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters to you and we'll take your daughters to ourselves and we'll dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out at the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Like I said, there's no heroes in this story. That's the end of the story. That's the end of the chapter. So let's get a a little bit of a better understanding of these events by looking at the failures of the main actors in this story, starting with Shechem. Now, first, let's remember Jacob, he's brought his family and all his possessions back to the land of Canaan, and he settled for some time near this city called Shechem. He's even, brought, he's even bought a plot of land from the sons of Hamor, who, and Hamor's the ruler of the area. Now, God's already told Jacob that his name will now be Israel. Those are the roots and the foundations being built for what will eventually become the Hebrew or Israelite people. And the immediate question hovering around in the background is how will these God's people interact with the people in the land with the Canaanites. God has given them the sign of circumcision to set them apart from the other people. 
We've already seen there's an understanding that they shouldn't intermarry with the Canaanite people because they worship other gods. So how will they live surrounded by these pagan people? And the first story we come to shows us that there's going to be tension and in a major way. We're told back in Genesis chapter 30 that Jacob had 11 sons at this point and he had one daughter named Dinah. This terrible event begins when Dinah goes out to see the women of the land, but it's Shechem, the son of Hamor, the prince of the land, that notices her. And what does it tell us he does? It says he seizes her, lays with her, and humiliates her. See, this is nothing less than rape. What it describes is forceful violence against her, but it also accurately describes the humiliation of it as well. You see, not only is this a horrible, traumatic event, something like this would also have lasting repercussions going forward for Dinah, especially in those ancient times. The humiliation aspect of it is that Shechem has stolen something from Dinah that was not his to take, and it's not something that can be given back. He's stolen her virginity, and Even though she was clearly the victim, going forward throughout her life, she would have been looked at as damaged goods and undesirable because of that. That's why it uses the word defiled to describe what has happened to her. See, this is a horrific thing that's been done to Dinah. And then we see a continued perversion of God's design for attraction and and desire in marriage. It might surprise us and even disturb us when we read verse 3. It tells us that Shechem's soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved her and wanted to marry her. And there's nothing in here that suggests that this isn't true, uh, true, her, true, him truly loving her. Now, if you were to take verse 3 out of its context, just read it by itself, there would be no problem that Shechem's attracted to her, his soul's drawn to her, he loves her, and he wants to marry her. Nothing wrong with that at all. That's in line with God's good design for, for marriage and, and that there would be an emotional, relational, and physical attraction between a man and woman that initiates marriage. And then that marriage culminating with the physical union or coming together of the man and woman. All that is good and honoring in God's sight, but that's not what happens here. There's actually been a complete reversal of the order of the way things are supposed to happen, and this reversal is shameful, humiliating, and dishonoring to God's design. Shechem begins by being consumed with lust that leads him to forcing this physical union, and it's only after that that talk of love and marriage comes. And we should naturally be repulsed and even angry when we read this story and the actions of Shechem. So that's what Shechem does. And next, I want us to look at the actions of the sons of Jacob. We'll save Jacob for last because it's only till the end that we really understand his full response. But let's consider the sons of Jacob. They hear what's happened to their sister, and naturally and rightfully, they're enraged. But then Hamor comes to negotiate a marriage between Shechem and Dinah. He proposes this marriage not only on the basis that his son wants to marry her, but also on the basis that this would be a great business opportunity. For both parties, this would essentially be uniting their peoples as one. The Shechemites and the people of Jacob would become one people and mutually benefit from one another. 
He's proposing an alliance, which for the vast majority of human history, marriages were often the most uh, binding form of an alliance. After all, you're less likely to attack your neighbor if you've married your daughter or your son to them. And then on top of that, Shechem himself interjects in the conversation saying, you name the bride price, whatever it is, I'll pay it. But this negotiation sets in motion this diabolical plan on the part of Jacob's sons. Now, we're not sure if this is literally all of his sons. Some of the later children like Joseph probably would have been too young at this point to take part in what happens. But we're led to believe it is a majority of his 11 sons involved in this plot. And there's really three parts to what they do. First, there's the deception They tell Hamor and Shechem that they'll agree to this plan of uniting and giving Dinah in marriage only if they're circumcised, because after all, it would be a disgrace to give their sister to a man who's uncircumcised. But of course, this is all part of a larger plan that they're crafting. You see, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree when it comes to Jacob's sons. They seem to have inherited this knack for deception and are such convincing actors that Hamor and Shechem agree to it. They even tell the other Shechemites, we're at peace with these people. Things are good. They are fully on board, and they think they've just struck the deal of the century. Not only will Shechem get his wife, but they will certainly become much stronger and more wealthier by uniting with Jacob in all he has. They'll be a force to be reckoned with in the area, and this deal is so appealing that they easily convince all the men of Shechem to be circumcised along with them. So they think this will be a really lucrative deal. But that leads to the second part, which is the massacre. All the sons are involved in the deception, but now it tells us only Levi and Simeon take up swords and kill every male in Shechem while they're recovering from circumcision. And then they liberate their sister and take her back home. It makes sense that Levi and Simeon are the ones who take part in this because like Dinah, they are also sons of Leah. Remember, Jacob's sons come from four different women, but Levi and Simeon are both children of Leah, just like Dinah. So they seem to take this offense a little bit more personally. And this truly is a massacre. They don't just kill Shechem, but also Hamor and all the males in the city. This is nothing less than an act of genocide. And why would they kill all the males? Well, that would be done to literally exterminate a people group. If there are no more males, then that family name and that line cannot continue. See, this is a horrific act of violence. And then the third part is plundering. They plunder the city. And again, all the sons of Jacob are involved at this part. It's a very barbaric and greedy thing for them to come upon the city after all the men have been killed. They take all the animals, the possessions, and all the women and children as well. And this is the first glimpse we get of the children of Jacob, and it's not a good report that we see. All we see is treachery, violence, and greed. And now that finally brings us to Jacob. The only thing we're initially told about Jacob's response is that he holds his peace when he learns of what's happened because his sons are out in the field. And at first glance, that might not seem too bad. Maybe he's just trying not to overreact. Maybe he's trying to think what's the wisest course of action, wait for his sons to 
return to get a full understanding of what they should do. But then by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we get a fuller picture of Jacob's response. And it can be summed up in two words, and that's passivity and fear. On the back side of it, it's clear that Jacob's passivity and lack of response in this situation opens the doors for his sons to take matters into their own hands and commit that awful act of violence. And his passivity is closely related to his fear as well. They go hand in hand. In verse 30, he rebukes Simeon and Levi for their actions. And his line of thinking is that now they have put their whole family in danger and at risk of being attacked by the larger people groups in the area. And that is sound reasoning. It makes sense that if the larger nations around them see this, think that this smaller group has gone rogue and is uh, destabilizing the land, then they would certainly do something about it. That makes sense, but it still doesn't justify Jacob's passivity based in fear. He's more concerned with his own safety than with the justice due for his daughter. And that's how the story ends. There's no heroes in this story. There's not one single redeeming factor in this story. It ends with Jacob rebuking his sons and his sons saying, that's what we had to do. What else did you want us to do? But I want you to notice two very important things that are missing in this story. Two things that are missing. First, there is no justice. There is no justice for Dinah. No justice comes from Jacob. He's fearful and passive. But also understand that no justice comes from Jacob's sons either. What comes from them is revenge. And justice and revenge are not the same thing because they have different motives. The motive of justice is to right a wrong based on moral truth. But the motive of revenge is retaliation based on rage and hatred. And this revenge goes far beyond anything that would be considered acceptable punishment. So there's really no justice for Dinah in this story. But the other major thing missing from this story is God. Nowhere in this chapter is God mentioned. There's not a single mention of God or the Lord or anything in the whole story. And when you realize that God is nowhere to be found in this story, then it makes sense why justice is also nowhere to be found in this story. There's no true justice apart from God's law. Justice has become a bit of a buzzword in our culture in recent years. There's a, what's called the social justice movement that, calls ju that speaks of justice in terms of redistribution of of wealth and opportunities and privileges where inequity and inequality is labeled as unjust. Uh, politicians throw around the word justice quite a bit as well. It's one of those words that if you add it onto a sentence or a situation, it seems to add more seriousness or weight to it. Uh, if you look at social media at any given point, one of the Usually there'll be something trending that says, a hashtag that says justice for so-and-so, and you just fill in the blank. And sadly, there are many cases where there is justice that is missing. Something has happened to someone and justice needs to be carried out. Everyone likes to talk about justice. Everyone likes the idea of justice, but not every use of the term is accurate and not every declaration of justice is legitimate. 
The truth is that the farther an individual or a society wanders from the law of God, the, far, the farther it will find itself from being able to find and establish true justice. That's because true justice cannot be found apart from God's truth. And that's because in both natural revelation and written revelation, God has revealed to us what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And those are not categories that we as people get to define. Those are categories set by God, the creator. And this story in Genesis 24 shows us what happens when God is left out. So is justice left out. Even the failures of Jacob and his sons in this story are typical of how people today fail to deliver justice. On one hand, there's the failure of Jacob. Jacob's reaction to the defiling of his daughter is to be fearfully passive. No one knows who originally said it, but maybe you've heard the, the phrase, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And how sadly true that is. It's not enough to simply not do evil. God doesn't call us to passive obedience. He calls us to active obedience. God calls us to be people of action. And that's rooted in the fact that God himself is perfectly just. Deuteronomy 32.4 tells us the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 89.14 also tells us righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So God himself is perfectly just and righteous. In his people, as his people, we are meant to reflect and replicate his character in the world around us. And that includes his justice and righteousness. Naturally then, the Bible calls God's people to seek justice. Like Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Or Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And sadly, some of the most grievous Sins of Christians and church leaders in our present day have come in the form of passivity when it comes to seeking justice. And just like here in Genesis 34, it most often has been a failure to protect and seek justice for women. Even within our own convention of Southern Baptists, investigations have found that in certain groups and at certain times, there has been an utter failure to protect and seek justice for people in abusive situations in Southern Baptist churches. And do you know why they chose to be passive? It was because they were afraid. They were afraid of opening the can. They were afraid of stirring the pot. They were afraid of the repercussions or what it might do to the name of the denomination. They were afraid of what might happen in because of that, they did not seek justice. Because of that, they did not hold people accountable, and they shamefully and sinfully did nothing. So many examples of people failing to find justice because they did exactly what Jacob did and were passive. But then on the other hand, justice can also be missed in the way Jacob's sons handle it. They seek revenge 
instead of justice. Their motivation wasn't wasn't to right a wrong or to seek justice for their sister. Their motivation was to find an outlet for their rage and anger. And that's just as sinful as the passivity. What Shechem did to Dinah was awful and wicked, and he should have been held accountable and punished accordingly. But instead, Simeon and Levi massacre a whole town. They murder every male in the place and take all the possessions. It's easy to find examples in our culture today of failed attempts at justice like this. In recent years, there have been you know, many destructive riots break out in certain cities around our country that leads to violence and looting. Those riots may have begun as peaceful protests about true injustices, but the riots themselves do not bring about justice. They lead actually to more injustice. It's a sinful expression of that rage and anger. Or cancel culture itself is a failure at justice. How many times have we seen a person in a high position, they've been canceled because of something they did or something they said, maybe even many years before. And the purpose of canceling someone is basically to destroy their life. It's to completely ruin their career. Of course, sometimes the people being canceled are terrible people and they make serious mistakes, but canceling someone does not establish justice. Instead, it's a sinful expression of personal hatred. You see, apart from God, there's little hope for true justice. I believe Moses, the author, as he's writing this story, is pointing his readers to the fact that they need God's law. The people in this story recognize that something wicked has occurred, but they aren't very sure on how to pursue justice for what has happened. The story really anticipates the law uh, through Moses because we need God's law to know what is just and what is right and how to find justice. That applies in our own lives and also in our own society as well. Because we have the privilege of living in a representative democracy, we also as individuals need to take advantage of the opportunity of making sure the laws of our land are as closely aligned with the law of God as possible. Because that's the only way justice is established in a country. And we as Christians should hold very dearly the justice and righteousness of God. You know, when we think of the character of God and think of how we should be thankful and worshipful of God's character, we often probably default to thinking of God's grace and mercy and his love, things that we truly should be grateful for. But did you know that without God's justice, we would not be saved either? Romans 3.23 puts it best, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul there is addressing a really important question. How could God still be holy and perfectly just and righteous if he didn't punish us for our sins? You see, a just judge has to punish sin. How is it possible for God to save any of us and still be just? Well, it's because Jesus took our place. 
He was the propitiation for God's wrath. He took our place so that the perfectly just God could still pour out the punishment due for our sin. But Jesus took it upon himself in our place. He bore the wrath of God for you and for me in order that God would still be just and so that we could be justified in his sight. That's the beauty of Christ going to the cross on our behalf. And I want to end by reminding us all of the universal need for justification. That's the reason why the Gideons exist, why people around the world need the Bible, because they need to know how they can find justification from their sins. What does the Bible mean when it says justified, that we can be justified? It means to be justified means to be made right with God. Our record of sin is thrown out. We have a perfectly clean record in God's sight when we are justified. And every single human being on earth desperately needs to be justified because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And apart from God, our record is filled and dripping with nothing but sin. One day we'll all stand before God, the righteous judge of the universe. And if we come before him with our record still covered in sin, then we'll receive the just punishment for our sin, eternal punishment in hell. But for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they'll appear before God the judge with a clean record because the punishment for their sins has already been poured out on Christ on the cross. They'll stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and they'll be awarded eternal life in heaven. We'll all stand before God the judge one day, but it's what you do with Jesus in this life that'll make all the difference in eternity. So I plead with you today, if you're here and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, please do that today. Your eternity is at stake. The good news is that the Bible makes it clear that the path to salvation comes through confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And through turning from your sins, you will be saved. And as I close in prayer in just a moment, if if that's you, I want you to take that time to pray to God, asking him to forgive you of your sins and to save you. And if you do that, I would love to talk to you after service and celebrate that decision with you. Would you pray with me?